This is CNT Talk. Every week, two friends debate the issues of the ages as we agree to disagree. It's never politically correct, but it's always entertaining. Join us tonight so you can sound knowledgeable at work tomorrow. We're smacking you upside the head with the hammer of truth. Welcome to the show. Hello, hello. Um, I want to start tonight's show with a win. You know, at, at my job, they always want to start with a win. What, what, what's a positive? <clears throat> so Saturday afternoon, well, Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, Saturday evening, I got to uh, sit with a friend and we smoked meat, um, ribs and pork butt and chicken wings and chicken hearts and pineapple. And it was just a great day. We were outside um, just messing with the smoker, just getting to t- try some of the meat. It was just a great, great day. That was for me personally. Um, weather was wonderful, so it was just an awesome time. Um, but I wanted to start with that because the rest of the show is going to go downhill from there. So I just want to. <laughs> well, wait, be- hold on. Be- before we start to go down the steep, icy slope, yes. uh, whatever you have planned, I think you should also acknowledge that uh, the Steelers, uh, your Steelers, yes. had an auspicious. Yeah. beginning to the season by beating the bills. Right. And, it, and, and yes. Mike Tomlin, your perpetual punching bag. Well, it, it was funny the the bills coach, Sean McDermott, who played with uh, Mike Tomlin at William and Mary. He said, we were outplayed and outcoached. I don't believe those two words have ever been used in the same sentence with Mike Tomlin outplayed and outcoached. Well, you know, of course, that that is the standard. That's what they all say. I sure. think the NFL actually requires the losing coaches to say we were outplayed and outcoached. And he forgot to say on both sides of the ball. Yes. That's, that's the, the full, that is the full boilerplate. Well, so let's start with that since you brought it up. When the uh, Bills ran a 75-yard kickoff back, I thought, can you fire the special teams coach after one play in the season? Is it possible? Because I saw no tackling whatsoever. Uh, only this, Chad, of course, would want the special teams coach to be fired after one play <laughs> into the season. But well, le- setting that aside. It, it yes. was a very auspicious beginning. Let's be honest about that. Yeah, I think um, I, I saw some good things out of Najee Harris. I think he's he's got potential. I don't know that he was utilized exactly the way he should, but they bills have a strong, strong defense. So I don't know that I can one, one game of sample size. You can really say for sure, but I think he has some good potential. Um, I Ben had a very un Ben like pr- productivity for the day, even with the second half added in there. If you're, if you're being honest, the Steelers had 54 total yards in the first half. Sure. That's, that's not a great first half. They, Okay. Turn it on the second half, thankfully. Okay, uh, Mr. Glass, glass half empty. So here's here's the non uh, non crazed non Steeler fan version of this from yes. the outside yes. perspective. The Steelers went into Buffalo mm-hmm. in front of the Bills Mafia mm-hmm. and beat, I would say, one of the four best, four or five best teams in football. Mm-hmm. while not even playing all that well on offense yes. because Juju did nothing. As mm-hmm. you said, their running game wasn't. And, of course, the Bills have a very good defense. That's why one, sure. that's why they're one sure. of the best teams. And the Steelers' defense, Chad, I'm sorry, with, with now they have Melvin Ingram. That mm-hmm. Steelers' defense looks like it's going to be one of the best 
three or four defenses in the league. So I would say going forward, the Steelers look like, again, the NFL is all about who can stay healthy, whatever. Right. They're they're They are clearly one of the contending teams in the AFC without question. I, I think based on what I saw yesterday, I think they have potential to, to be exactly that. I think that somebody, three of the, I think three of the four talking heads on CBS picked the bills to be in the Super Bowl. I think that's a bit of a stretch, but it's possible. Um, but I, I, do, I don't disagree with that. I think the Steelers, they've got some offensive woes, but this, this dates back to last year. We'll see if they can straighten things out and get some movement going down the field. But I thought the defense looked very good, and I didn't, I didn't uh, feel bad about them. I, they were on the field a lot. The Steelers' defense was on the field a lot. So when they were starting to wither a little bit and they went down 10 I guess it was ten nothing at halftime or ten three. I mean, either either TJ Watt or Aaron Donald are is the best yeah. defensive player in the NFL. Um, so they've got they've Watt got. If you're asking me, I, I don't think it. I think TJ Watt should have won Defensive Player of the Year last probably. year. Probably not. So yeah. Okay. So I think the Steelers again. The other question is going to be, you know, can Ben can Ben make it through? A whole season now he says he feels better than he's felt in years his arm because his right elbow was giving him all kinds of problems last year sure. um i look of course that division also looks like it's going to be a bloodbath because despite the fact that the browns managed to gack away a browns game up again huh? to, to the chiefs <laughs> and they didn't really gack it away i mean this is what the chiefs do I know. but the browns are no joke uh the browns didn't have odell beckham they went into Kansas City. They probably should have won that game, except for a few. I mean, they they got the Chiefs got lucky on another one of the Mahomes outside the pocket. I wing it down the field, and they got very lucky because it really wasn't a good throw. But Tyreek Hill got open yeah. because the, he was covered, and it was either the corner or the safety who kind of had his momentum going in one direction and misplayed the ball. Uh, the Chiefs should have lost that game. So the Browns are good. The Steelers are very good. The Ravens, I mean, they're playing right now. I suspect right. the Ravens, and of course the Ravens still have the injury curse. The Ravens yeah. are very good. That division is brutal. I, I think, as always, it's a bloodbath in the the uh, AFC Central. Oh, and by the way, one more point. Right. Yes. Uh, the Joe Burrow Bengals are not a playoff team, but they're no pushover. No. They, they're going to beat some people. Oh, yeah. Hey, in interdivision, you—it's anybody's game most of the time. I—I uh, I, was—I was going to say about the Browns. I was imp- grudgingly impressed with the Browns yesterday, and you're right—they—they they had a handle on the uh, Chiefs, and somehow were able to let it get away. But they're—they're they're an improved team. Um, we'll have to see long term what that looks like. You know, I think there's a there's a fine line between NFL teams. I mean, there's from extremes. You, you, you can have some really bad teams and some really awesome teams. But from week to week, what do they say? Any given Sunday. Any given Sunday, you can find a way to win. Um, can you do it consistently? Remains to be seen. But anybody can and I think Baker. Right. I think Baker is good. I don't. I don't think Baker is elite, but I think he's he's good. He is a good NFL quarterback. And I don't know if you saw the, the interception that ended the game. Yeah. It wasn't really his fault. If you watch the replay, he was already 
try he was in his throwing motion and the guy clipped his feet he wasn't aware the guy was behind him and so he lost all of the velocity and he said he was trying to throw the ball out of bounds yeah. and when he got clipped like that it just basically the pass but they're like oh he should have never made that throw he didn't know the guy was behind him right mm-hmm. on his ankles when he threw it so well, their quarterback was- is good enough uh they've got a lot of weapons on offense yeah, and their defense, you. particularly their defensive line is very good. So they're, they're, they're tough. They are tough. And you mentioned OBJ. I'm not sure he's not more of a distraction most of the time than a, than an asset. He's a very talented receiver, but he just seems to be a distraction everywhere he goes. And I don't well, know. I think, why. I think the media, everything I've read about him is that his teammates love him. Okay. So he's not a he's not a diva figure within the locker room like a Terrell Owens or you know an Antonio Brown who by the way, scarily enough looks like he might actually be back to playing very well, which is which is a very frightening thought. Yeah. If the if the Antonio Brown of two years ago is going to be on the field for the Buccaneers, that mm-hmm. is that's almost unfair. But the point is, I think OBJ is more the distraction is created by the media because they just they can't they obsess over the guy everything he does. Um, he he clearly has not performed up as advertised at all. No. No. In Cleveland. And I think this is a make or break season for him in terms of can you be on the field and can you produce? But if he can, oh, yeah. he's one of the he's one of the three or four most talented receivers in the league. Yeah. He again, very talented. It just doesn't he doesn't seem to gel all the time. And I don't know why. I, I don't have an answer for it. And I agree, it's not Terrell Owens who was me, 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 but it, it's the same result. And I don't know if that's helpful. Uh, you know, sometimes teams are better without the best player because the best player sometimes is a distraction. They have to perform better. So we'll see. Quick question on this. Bucks won or Dallas lost it Thursday night? Did the Bucks beat the Cowboys or did the Cowboys beat the Cowboys? No, I think the I think the Bucks won. I mean, the Bucks are really good. Look, Dak looked really good. Mm-hmm. That Cowboys offense is going to score a lot of points because they have three really good receivers and they've got Zeke. Now, the Bucks probably have the best run-stopping defense or one of the two or three in the league, and they and they telegraphed what they were going to do, which is we're not going to let Zeke run. You have to beat us throwing, and Dak almost did it. Um, I don't think the Cowboys did anything in particular to lose that game. I just think you give Tom Brady and that offense the last opportunity to score, and that, that's what they're going to do. Yeah, I think even a minute 24 is too much to give Tom Brady uh, with the game on the line. I, I don't want to put too much blame on Zerline, although when, once you miss an extra point and then you try to come back from that, it just it, you're playing catch-up, and it just really – changes the dynamic of a game sometimes just that well, simple and he's and he obviously they had said he's coming off back surgery i know and, and you could tell he you didn't could tell right. that his his kicking i mean look if his back is still even you know 85 percent the first field goal he tried from like 20 he he literally like shank pulled the thing yeah. left by i mean he never does that so no. i don't think he's i don't think he's 100 percent healthy no I, I don't think he is either but it I, I don't want to give the guy too much grief because I he he is struggling uh, physically. It looks like so you know you you win as a team, you lose as a team. So you don't blame one guy for something, but you know and he and he up. to his credit, after having a day where he struggled, banged in the clutch field goal that right. looked like it might actually win them the game. So 
the fact that McCarthy went for a 60 yard field goal with him, which I knew was that, that seemed really a stretch. Well, for, the way he was kicking, what? you're thinking, although maybe McCarthy's thought process was, look, this is not one of these. It's not a pressure kick. Nobody expects him to make it. Right. Let him get out there and swing away. And maybe he get maybe with another repetition, he starts getting in a groove. I don't know. Yeah. Cause it, it's, you're running that line. Do I punt? Do I kick? And he decided to kick. It was about the same end result. So, okay, let's get into the other stuff that we, we came the, here to The discuss. bad stuff. Okay. Well, what's, what's first on the agenda? Well, so we were supposed to record on Saturday, which would have been the 20th anniversary of nine 11. We weren't able to do that. I just wanted to talk about some of the feelings. So I was watching um, Apple TV Plus uh, had a inside the war room of the Bush White House the first 12 hours after uh, of 9-11. Um, and it was it was enlightening for me. And it, it brought back a lot of memories for me to watch that, um, you know, and just to watch George W. Bush's face when he's sitting in front of the children reading a book and he's being told that another plane hit the second tower. And he, he makes a comment. He says, you know, one time's an accident, second time's war, or or uh, second time's, I think it's war, and the third time when he hit the Pentagon. Uh, I can't remember what he said exactly, but it was just it, it stages of, of, of grief on what we're going to do. And he said, at the end of that day, I didn't know who was responsible, but I knew the, thing, the first thing at the top of my list was we're going to go kick some ass. That was his word. That was his feeling on that day. And I think I've forgotten how far he traveled all over the country because I know you remember this and I remember this. I, I remember watching, I, w- I did not see the first tower get hit. I saw the second tower get hit as they were reporting on the first tower and I'm sitting there watching it and then everything breaks loose because nobody knew what was going to happen, was going on. Nobody had any idea what was happening. The Pentagon hadn't been hit yet. Shanksville hadn't happened. All that happens and you don't know what's going on. Is there more happening out there? And I, I remember they talked to um, Andy Card, who was the chief of staff for, for Bush at that point. And he said, we had to ground every airplane because we had 400 bombs in the air, having no idea what was controlled by whom and where it was going to go. And he said it was eerie to look at it, at the FAA map and see nothing, not a single thing moving around except us. He said, and we're in the, we're in the Air Force One and we can't get communication. We, we had no satellite TV on the plane, so we'd have to fly over. As we're flying over different sections of the country, we'd pick up over-the-air signals, and we'd get a little bit of the news broadcast, and then we wouldn't get more. And we had a hard time with the communications, I think because everything was jammed, everything was messed up. And he said, we, we could not communicate with the White House where, where uh, Cheney was. So we didn't really know what was going on half the time we were out there flying around. And the fact they went to two different Air Force bases, I had forgotten that. And then finally got back to Washington and had a speech that night. You know, that's that's a pretty eventful day by anybody's standard. But what what happened to me, I also watched a, a series on Netflix called Turning Point, which recapped the first day or two, and then went into the whole war on terror. So I don't want to I don't want to dwell on 9-11. We all know what happened 9-11. We were, whoever was alive then recognizes what, what went on. But it's the aftermath. It's the, the Patriot Act. It's the war in Afghanistan, which to Obama's credit calls the good war, versus Iraq, which was the bad war. 
what's our lasting ramifications of this? Um, and and, and I, I titled this section, Everything Old is New Again, because it feels like 20 years passed, blood and treasure, and we're right back where we were. We, nothing has really changed from the world stage as far as terrorism is concerned, as far as our standing in the world. We, we were looked at as a bit weak then, and I would contend probably right now we're looked at as a little weak. Uh, maybe we have less allies now than we had then. What are your thoughts, Tony? Where, where are we? It, it, are we in a better place than we were 20 years ago, or is it exactly the same just 20 years later? I don't think anybody actually knows the answer to that question, honestly. Um, Mm -hmm. Candidly, I would have said as of seven months ago, we were in a better place. We clearly are not now. I mean, literally in seven months. And you could say, oh, that's ridiculous. You know, Joe Biden's been in office seven months. That's just partisanship. No, no. That's that's me observing Mm -hmm. how quickly this administration has uh, created one disaster after another. And we've talked a little bit about this. Um, so you can have a debate about whether we should have been in Afghanistan to begin with, uh, whether we should have immediately gotten out. What is very, very clear, however, is that we were there for 20 years and spent trillions of dollars. Uh, and I don't know the death toll, but there were thousands of American servicemen who died over the course of that period of time. And in the space of basically a week, this administration, in its galactic incompetence in how we removed ourselves has has essentially eliminated any gains that we made and in fact has created now uh, a new terror haven for all of the bad actors in the world uh to to again attempt to assault america and its citizens and its allies and it it just shows you leadership matters. Now people are going to laugh and say, yeah, look, you know, you, you like the bad orange man. Leadership does matter. We were under the Trump and Reich for four years, but you know what? He never created a scenario. In fact, Joe Biden said this himself in, in one of his ridiculous opposite world speeches about this, where he was claiming that this was successful. One of the things that he said was we got into Afghanistan to make sure that Al Qaeda essentially was not going to be allowed to to spread to strengthen that was our and he justified that that was our initial reason and we should have gotten out well he has now created the circumstances under which we have replicated that scenario 20 years later where now Al Qaeda and ISIS and the Taliban and whoever else, whatever, whatever solo or terror cell is in that area are flocking to that place. They're now fully armed with U.S. weaponry and they've chased us out with our tail between our legs. And so where are we? I, I, again, I would have said seven months ago that we were, we were better. I think we have to at least acknowledge that since 9-11, there has never been anything close to that kind of t- successful terror attack uh, you know, on, our, on our shores. And here's, here's the other thing, Chad, which people, none of us are aware of. There are hundreds and hundreds of terror threats every week, arguably every day, that are people are intercepting or we don't know about any of that we don't know about any of really the successful operations to blow up 
a, a terror ring or stop a plot. I mean, we learn about some of them, like the shoe bomber, right? Because there's an attempt and it becomes national news, but it's all behind the scenes. So we deserve some credit for that. But I was never like, I hear people ask about or pose the question, you know, when is the war on terror going to be over? It's never going to be over. It's never going to be over. It's a constant state of vigilance. Hopefully we're in a position where we are, uh, we have so sort of smashed a large institutional capability to inflict serious harm. But remember, Chad, Iran's on the cusp of having a nuclear weapon. I just read a report, and again, these reports vary, that they are now within eight weeks of of a breakout of having uh, weaponized nukes. So the world as it is, and, and just think about what's going on right now with the pandemic, you don't need now to fly planes into buildings. Right. You need a guy with a backpack somewhere carrying what's the latest gain of function variant of this virus, carrying yeah. you know a nuclear weapon that again, in conjunction with the Obama administration, uh, this feckless administration is now permitting to go ahead. So it's, it's a dangerous world. And here's, here's my final takeaway on this. We still fundamentally refuse to grapple with the people that we are dealing with here, mm-hmm. meaning we hear all of this sophistry and kind of, oh, this is not – this is, and I want to be very careful what I say here. Yeah. It, the, the, the understanding of these people, they are, not, they are not moderates, okay? So the Obama administration called, for instance, the Muslim Brotherhood. They're moderates. None of these people are moderates. The men – that were the architects of 9-11, the men like al-Zawahiri, like the blind sheik, these are all, they're not impoverished, okay? These are all wealthy, wealthy beyond the dreams of, I mean, how much was bin Laden worth, right? These are wealthy, educated men who because of their Islamic faith have said, we must wipe the infidels off the face of the earth, and in particular Israel, but anyone who will not be subjugated under Sharia law. Now, that is somehow distasteful for our elites to acknowledge because they believe that in, in so admitting this that you're engaged in some kind of Islamophobia. No <laughs> one is saying that, but this is not some perversion of mainstream doctrine. And the reason we know this is because if you actually listen in Arabic to what is taught from the main mosques within the Islamic world, okay, where the the leading scholars of Islam, they are saying this repeatedly. Engage in jihad, right? Wipe the infidels off the map. Push Israel into the sea. This is commonplace. This is not a fringe idea. And unfortunately, even if 2% of a religion that is made up of how many billion adherents? What are, we, what are we at? It's at least a billion. Or even 1%, that is a very, very large percentage of people who are dedicated to this kind of warfare. And we are never going to be rid of it in our lifetimes. We are not. Yeah. Was it 1% of a billion is 100 million? That's a, that's a lot of terrorists. So let's say it's one ten, let's say it's one one hundredth of one percent. The point is that when yeah. you hear people say you shouldn't talk about this, they refuse to acknowledge exactly what we are facing and what some of these people believe. 
And, 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 you know, then you have the moral equivalence between, well, it's the problem is all religious fundamentalism. As Christopher Hitchens would put it, Presbyterians are not driving truck bombs into buildings. Okay. There is one particular religion that certain adherents are engaged in active terrorism around the globe. There's only one. Now there's individuals that engage in violent acts, but that's not the same thing. Well, and and we talked about that with the shoe bomber, you know, you said if uh, a white blonde haired people are putting bombs on planes, then you pull white blonde people off the plane and you, you detain them until you determine they're not going to blow up the plane. You know, I'm not, I don't know what the answer is because I don't think, I, I think we, we went into Afghanistan, I think initially to root out al-Qaeda, hoping the Taliban would just turn them over. And that didn't happen. And once we knew that we had control of the country, such such as it was, and he wasn't in Afghanistan anymore, we stuck around. And then we get into the nation building. Now, the plus side is, did we have as much terrorism, terrorist activity across the country or the world because we were in Afghanistan? I would say it's probably a good chance because we were there, there was not a haven for that. They might have moved elsewhere. Might not have been as organized and not as consolidated, but we've just allowed that to happen again. So it, it really hasn't changed. We just gave up twenty years, and and literally some of the same people that were in power twenty years ago with the Taliban are back in power. So that oh, hasn't. By re- the way, to that point, yeah. including yes. including in leadership positions, I think all or eighty percent of the terrorists that we swapped for deserter Bo Bergdahl, uh, who we were assured by all of the smart set within our state department that no, 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 these men are going to retire and play bocce. They're, they're, they're now all staffing important positions within the current Taliban Al Qaeda regime, which does that come as a shock to you, Chad? No, no, no. And I think we said at the time you gave up five for one. There was no, I'm not saying you leave anybody behind, although Biden is okay with that. I believe he was a deserter. I believe Bo Berger was a deserter. And we gave up five known terrorists for a deserter. That, by any stretch of the imagination, is insane. You gave up five really bad dudes for one guy who honestly didn't want to be there, regardless of what he tells you now. Uh, Yeah, it, it bothers me immensely. But the whole point is, I don't know what you do. Because holding the cities in Afghanistan didn't hold the countryside held the cities because it's a non government type of situation. So the government didn't fall. They just retreated and we never rooted them out because we don't understand how to. And I think we talked about this before. I think we were paying chieftains and warlords to do what they needed to get paid by us for whatever we were going to give them money for. They were going to supply whatever that means. We were never really understanding the country. And I don't want to hear about the, the you know, Afghanistan, the, you know, the death of empires. No, we went into it not understanding what we we're getting into, and we didn't have the stomach to stay there no, indefinitely. But here's the question. Here's the question, though. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm also not an advocate for nation building. And I, and I think the democratization of the Mideast project is folly. Mm-hmm. You're not going to impose our values on that culture for a whole host of reasons. But here to me is the question. And, and this is the false choice that Biden employed in exactly the same way that Obama did it, where he, he presented the choice of we either bug out or it's forever war. Okay, right. And so you need to take a step back and say, well, wait a minute. 
we have troops right now all over the world, on every continent in the world. I don't know what the total is overseas, but it's tens of thousands. Mm-hmm. It's tens of thousands of U.S. troops in various countries. We had a force of – oh, and by the way, Trump wanted out too. Okay, sure. So let's be clear. Now, he Third wanted Obama. out on – so, Obama, right. so, so, the, so in terms of the end goal, the preceding two administrations were of the same mindset. However, we had 2,500 troops there. The last fatality mm-hmm. in combat for an American soldier was, I believe, we talked about this, something like March. It was 18 months before this debacle. Right. And over the past decade, there had been a limited number of combat deaths. Obviously, for every family that happens to, it's a tragedy. But here's the point. We weren't actively at war, and we had a fairly minimal troop commitment. Again, not unusual, because we have these everywhere, and the situation was essentially stable. So my question is, yes, now you've gotten in, perhaps with impossible to achieve goals, Mm -hmm. but you're there, the situation, which again is the hub, one of the hubs in the Mideast, isn't it worth potentially keeping the status quo? Now, if something changes and fighting ramps up and our soldiers are getting killed, you have to make a different decision. But to me, there was no pressing reason right now to say we are going to have a precipitous immediate withdrawal of all of those troops. Why? Now, again, we know why, because it was a political photo op for Joe Biden, who wanted this done before September 11, so he could stand up and say, I'm the guy that ended the war in Afghanistan. Now he can't even talk about it because it's been such a disgrace that college football stadiums are chanting profanity Joe everywhere. Okay, so he he completely, in, in every way possible, uh, did this about as, as horrifically badly as imaginable. But I pose this to you, Chad, as someone who I think believes we should be out isn't the middle option, what was the reason that right now we should be saying every last troop is leaving that country when we haven't had a soldier killed there in almost two years before what happened a couple of weeks ago? Sure. Uh, I don't know that I say we should be out. I don't know that we should have stayed. I think once bin Laden left Afghanistan and we knew he was not in Afghanistan, we should have left then. I don't think we should. Okay. That would, well, well, that's fair. Well, that's but, fair. But my point is, is we have to deal with we have to deal with the reality as it exists now. Correct. So if we were still if this was seven months ago, I disagreed with Trump making a peace deal with the Taliban. I don't think that was a good choice. I think that would, you can't. It's like dealing with the Soviets. They'll sign anything and it will hold to whatever benefits them. You can't negotiate with people who want you to die. There is no negotiation. We talk about this over and over again, but we we walk into this, and I I don't believe um, diplomatic services are an answer. I think they are a tool to the process. They are not the answer, which everybody wants to hear. It's either war or diplomacy. No. War and diplomacy are part of the package you have available to you. So seven months ago, or last February 20th, or February 2020, Trump makes a deal that I think was a horrible deal. I don't care how he wants to defend it. It was a horrible deal. Mike Pompeo can stand up and say, well, we wouldn't have done this. I don't know if you would or not on May 1st. Blinken said today in front of Congress, we inherited a bad deal and we had to stick to the timeline. You inherited a bad deal. You 
you got rid of every other deal you've ever had that Trump ever had. So don't give me that. And you didn't hold to the timeline on May 1st. You held to August 31st because you changed it. So you're full of crap as usual. I don't know if you're still there and you're still protecting. Great. I don't know that the 2,500 would have been sufficient long-term. I truly think Trump making that deal gave us a little breathing room. But even going back prior to that, we were losing between 10 and 20 soldiers every year uh, in Afghanistan. Again, very tragic for them, but on the grand scheme, 10 to 20 soldiers to maintain, let's using 9-11 as an example, 3,000. That's Unfortunately, that's a calculus you can make and say 20 deaths is better than 3,000. Now, I don't know if that's what it would have been. I don't know if 20 would have been the limit. I, I don't know that. But once you're there, you either have to stay indefinitely. Now, when we talk, you're hearing in the news all the time, this is America's longest war, which is a lie. It is not true. We have been at war on the Korean Peninsula since 1950. That would be 71 years. Don't tell me this is the longest war because you idiots out there think you can't read. And that includes our friend who can't apparently read a timeline and doesn't have any history books that go back further than uh, Donald Trump. I, I don't understand that. 1950, the Korean War. That is our longest war. It is still going. There is no peace treaty between North and South Korea. There is none. That makes it an active war. Shooting can start up at any time. So everybody get calm yourself down. This was not our longest war. This was not the war we lost the most people in. By far, not even close. We lost more in Vietnam, a lot more in Vietnam. So I get really tired of this trotted out phrase, Biden, it's going to be this or indefinite war. Well, call me when we've got another 50 years under our belt. Then you can talk to me. Until then, shut up. If you want to get out, then say, I want us to get out. I believe we should be out. Regardless of what the American people said, you were elected president by 81 million people. And they said, we, we trust you, Joe. You're the guy for us. He, told, he said during, when he's running, we want to get out of Afghanistan. Okay, you did it. But do it correctly. And I'm not saying there would have been no loss of life and it wouldn't have left any Afghans behind, but we shouldn't have left any Americans behind any Americans behind. So two, two points there. So one of the things that would normally be said in response is, Oh yeah. Easy for you, Tony, or easy for you, Chad, uh, to advocate keeping a single American soldier there. It's not your child that's Mm -hmm. at risk. So, okay, fair enough. But here's the point. These situations are entirely fluid, meaning there are always reactions and consequences to decisions we make now. So, for example, now that we've pulled all those troops out, well, what are we going to be facing in two, three, four, five years in the Mideast as Al-Qaeda now has a reinvigorated nexus of terrorism? Because just as we saw with what Biden had to do after his ridiculous evacuation collapsed, we had to surge 6,500 troops into, as I said, a kill box, which wound up getting 13 men killed in the space of a day. So it's easy to say, oh, well, right now we've gotten everyone out and there's no more risk. Well, what happens in two years when we're forced to act 
because we have created a vacuum that vacuum is now posing direct national security threats to our allies and to America. We're going to have to make additional hard decisions about sending other men into harm's way. So this is never, this is never static such that they're out and we're done. No, we're not necessarily done. Now, we can make a policy decision. We're never going back in. That policy decision might change given the fact that Pakistan has nukes, Iran is likely to have nukes, and the idea that we can totally guarantee we will never again have to be involved to protect this country in a shooting war in the Mideast is, I'm afraid, crazy. Yes. We may prefer that. We may prefer that. We may want to shout war, what is it good for? But as I think the saying goes, you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. And so for anyone who's a planner to just arbitrarily say, we're done, thank goodness, it's the end of history in Afghanistan, that is not how the world works. No, I agree with you. I think once you, once you got into the nation building process, there's not an easy way to get out. And I'm not I'm not convinced based on what I've read and what I've seen in Afghanistan that if you went another 50 years, it would make a difference. I really don't know from a nation building standpoint. I'm not saying from a terror standpoint, but from a nation building standpoint, Oh, I don't think it would make a difference. I think it makes no difference whatsoever. And they will say that Afghanistan has never been conquered. Um, that's uh, not true. Um, the Persian empire did conquer them. Uh, Alexander the great kind of conquered them, but didn't hold it for long. So the fact is, I, I hear everything you're saying, and I agree with you. If, if pulling them out left, leaves a vacuum, we saw it in Iraq. We're seeing it now in Afghanistan. It's not going to change. We've now created, and we talked about this last time, we've created a perceived weakness that our enemies, Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, Pakistan, uh, are going to look at and say, okay, they're not – they're not what we thought they were. We can, we can go further. We can do other things. Um, to your point, we're going to be fighting these same people, whether it's in Afghanistan or somewhere else, because we didn't take care of it. We didn't get it done. And I don't know what gets it done. I mean, we, can, we could rehash Vietnam. We, we could. I don't, I, there's a little known that just got declassified recently. Um, there was an advisor to Carter in 79. We effectively, we were, we were arming the Mujahideen in Afghanistan prior to the Russians, the Soviets invading in 79. We, we basically backed them into a corner where they almost had to invade. And the, the thought was, we'll give them their own Vietnam. We'll give them a quagmire where they get stuck fighting an endless war that they can't win and we knew it, and we were happy about it. That's, that's the legacy we're talking about. This goes back decades and decades. By we, the way, you just made me think of something. So, and it just kind of, it, it just makes you laugh. So even in isolation, you were talking about, look what happened in Iraq, where we created a vacuum. And the, the, the always now apt Robert Gates quote about Joe Biden. He's been wrong about every foreign policy decision in his life. Think about just within the window of Iraq. Mm -hmm. Joe Biden initially supports the Iraq war, then immediately opposes the Iraq war. Then 
opposes the one thing that Bush did correctly, which was recognizing we had created a disaster. Biden opposes the surge. The surge actually worked. Then Biden took credit, along with Obama, for the surge. But then they pulled all of our troops out, creating a vacuum for ISIS, which then Joe Biden opposed or for um, yeah for ISIS and then opposes killing bin Laden. Mm-hmm. And then he creates this calamity in mm-hmm. Afghanistan. I mean, he is a one man, one man dumpster yeah. fire being hurtled into the sun. He he is, again, you would have to assume that the person that is running that operation was intentionally attempting to to sabotage it, because you you can't possibly yeah. do that many things wrong. And so now this guy has the audacity to come out uh, again. I literally could not watch. No. any of his comments about 9-11. Uh, number one, again, the man barely even knows what he's saying. He's reading words that other people have given him to say. He's in his whatever accelerated dementia state. Uh, perhaps the meds that he's on for the day makes him lucid for seven minutes and 14 seconds. I don't know. But he is such a small man. And here's the funny thing. So you know, the people that hear me talk like this are going to be like, you are a Trump supporter and he's the smallest and yet also most dangerous and awful destructor ever. And how could you possibly say this about Joe Biden? Listen, I'm sorry. We've talked about this before. You can talk all you want about Donald Trump's character flaws and he's a terrible person and he's an adulterer and the Billy Bush tape and fine. You can claim all those things. Trump has never made a policy decision, even one that was as grave and humiliating and disgusting disaster as what Joe Biden just did alone in Afghanistan. We won't even talk about our national sovereignty relating to the border. We won't even talk about the economy. We won't even talk about the proto-fascism. And yes, that is the correct term for what he is doing with COVID. That one decision alone, point me to a single thing that Trump actually did while he was in office that is remotely comparable to that. It doesn't exist. No, it it doesn't. I I cannot look at what has happened here. Let me go back to the the retrospectives I was watching. I I challenge anybody who was even a teenager on September 11, 2001, go back and watch that video. Go back and watch the the footage of that day. Watch the I have no, I don't love New York City. I, I, if it wasn't there, I would be fine because I don't really like New York City. I don't like big cities to begin with. But watch the abject terror on some of these people's faces. Watch the people hanging out of the building as it collapses and tell me it's okay that the Taliban is back in charge in Afghanistan. It's going to be okay. They're better. They're not evil like they used to be. I'm sorry. You got to prove to me that you're not, and you haven't shown me anything in the last month that makes me think you're better, kinder, gentler. Watch that video. I challenge you. You know why they don't put it on? Because they don't want people to remember. The Biden administration does not want you to remember what that looked like and how you felt. Here's Here's the most haunting thing for me, the most just horrific and haunting thing. And of course there was incredible heroism, which, which we should remember. Um, one of the documentaries 
there's actually film of the firemen who are inside. I, I don't know which tower. Well, it's got to be. It's Tower 2. Um, and they're inside. And, of course, you can barely see because all of the acrid smoke and everything is in the air. And as they're in there and there's chaos and they're trying to get people out, outside the building, you hear this continued series of concussive booms, like bombs going off. Boom. Boom. And what it is, is people falling to their death from Mm -hmm. the building and hitting the ground. Mm -hmm. That's what that is. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can't, you, I can barely watch it without weeping. Um, It's particularly the one that always gets me is the man who (laughs) is up on whatever the hundred something floor. And of course it's an inferno. It's an unsurvivable inferno. And so he's out on the ledge just trying to survive and then he's just gone yeah and you try to think about yourself being in that position you go to work in the morning to do your stockbroker job or your investment banker job and an hour later you're clinging 130 stories up to the side of a building about to plummet to your death it's well, it's inconceivable it is inconceivable there was a there was a story of one woman was telling she she was on I want to think she was on the sixty eighth floor or something the first tower and if you remember it hit a little it hit like eighty something up um, and it was one of her coworkers who stayed behind to get everybody make sure everybody on the floor got out he felt responsible to make sure they got out he didn't make it out she was the last person out of the building in tower one before it collapsed because they had to walk down the steps you know, 60 flights of steps and, and it's jam packed with people trying to get out. And I think about the firefighters and the port authority police and the police. And, and I, there was a video on YouTube. I watched a lot of YouTube the, over the past week. They read every name and it took 38 minutes to read every name that just, that just died there. Think if you, if you, do nothing else. Just go watch that. If you haven't seen it in 20 years, you need to go because it, yes, it, it makes you angry. It makes you sad. It makes you all sorts of emotions all at once, but it's, it's part of our history and you can't forget it. And the Christian thing is I forgive those who did it, but I can't do that. I can't right now. I'm not able to do that. And I wasn't then. And I'm not now. I don't, I want to, well, well, even even harder, even harder, Chad. As as Christians, we're not only supposed to forgive them, right? We're supposed to actually love the people, love the people that did that. Now, again, that's not the Hallmark card kind of love. That's no. <laughs> um, that's something much deeper that you can only accomplish through the Holy Spirit, because humanly we can never accomplish that. But that is an incredibly, incredibly difficult admonition for for a christian and and of course the other question which is the age-old question of uh why does why does evil like this why why does god permit this kind of evil to exist and hold sway in the world and um the only thing that we know is that he is omnipotent he will jesus is returning again Uh, there will be an ultimate judgment rendered to every man and every woman and for our eye blink of existence in in the 
in the space of eternity, we, we may, uh, we're, I'm never going to understand why those things have happened. No. Um, and it is not ours to really question that. Who are we? Who are you to question? No, I'm not. Right? Some, some the, God, the God that has existed before, uh, you know, the beginning of time. Yeah. Uh, but it is, it is a very difficult thing to process the idea that we are called to not only forgive, but to love those who have perpetuated that kind of barbarity. It is because what we cry out for is vengeance. And yeah. we're also admonished that that is not for us. Now, that doesn't mean, however, uh, that we are supine, that we are to simply accept what these people do. No, we have the absolute right uh, and I think, frankly, that that a right, an absolutely holy and righteous God would would sanction this. Is no, these people that mean uh, evil, that mean to impose death and destruction and genocide. We we are we are I think morally justified in mm-hmm. in killing them, mm-hmm. in absolutely killing them to prevent them from doing that. There are consequences, uh, and should be consequences for people that are engaged in that kind of evil. Yeah, I, I think about the um, the people rushed in. I don't think I could have done that. Yeah, it's always it's it's the same question. You know, I think about this um, every time I watch Saving Private Ryan, and so you know the 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 famous scene which is, I think, the first 25 minutes of that movie when uh, the Normandy invasion has commenced. And you see, uh, actually, most of them boys, right? These are, these are they're barely men. These are, these are literally people, men, boys, who are 17, I think in some cases 16, 18 years old, who are on these Higgins boats, who are riding through the choppy sea, and that front gate is going to come down, and they're they're literally going to be facing zeroed German zipper guns, these belt-fed machine guns, and most of the men before they can even take a step are dead, yeah. literally pin cushioned, and they fall into the sea. And you always ask yourself, I ask myself, could I have done that? Now, because here here's literally what I think about. Um, to me, I would hope, and no one ever knows and no one can ever say what they would do unless they were in that situation. What I always think about is I think I could accept that I'm going into battle and there's a very good chance that I might be killed. But this is my duty and my obligation, and so I am going into the best of my ability, God willing to strengthen me, do this. But when you basically know that you're cannon fodder, right? That lit- I think they told most of the men, uh, you know, like, or at least maybe they didn't tell the men, but in their meetings, 90% of these men are going to be dead. But we have to have them because we need the second and third and fourth boat to be able to unload and get people on the beach. If you knew that, if you knew that you were called to that sacrifice, the same thing in the movie Glory about mm-hmm. the black regiment in the Civil War, and they knew that because they were the first regiment in that battle, they were all going to die. Yep. Could you do it? I don't know. I don't, I, I'm not in that situation, but I don't know. And you make a good point. Some of these, when you say, thank you for your service, do, do you mean it? Or do you just say it because it seems like the nice thing to say and is accepted as 
sincere or is it just uh, thanks? I appreciate it. We have a volunteer army at this point. We've had drafts in the past, but we had a volunteer army. The, the Normandy invasion, there were volunteers, but there was probably a lot of draftees as well. I don't know the, the mix on that. I would say from the Normandy invasion, I hope they didn't have any idea really what they were walking into. I, I know they thought it was bad, but if you watch Saving Private Ryan, at least that first 25 minutes, and you'd watched that before, and you knew this is what I'm getting up against, I don't know if as many of them would have <laughs> gone off that boat. And when you say Higgins' boat, Think of a poorly designed, poorly built, leaky bucket. That was a Higgins boat. They were shot, shot it's together. Just, it's just a rectangle of metal with a yeah. giant drawbridge gate on the front. It didn't keep the water out <laughs> very well. It kept enough of that to get you from England to Normandy, and that's about it. If you had to go much further, it probably would have sunk, and some of them did. But you're right. I don't know. If, if, you go, if you're going to say thank you for your service, please mean it. Be sincere about it because these people, even if even if they sat behind a desk doing supply, they could have been shot at. Some of these people, they didn't know where they were going to go, where they ended up. But man, if there if you know a World War II vet who was on Normandy, again, I don't think there's too many of those left uh, at this point. You should thank them every day for what they did, and they might have been horrible human beings otherwise, but they they sacrificed everything for us. And I don't, and I think the people, the, the soldiers in Afghanistan and soldiers in Iraq and all the other wars we've ever fought, they sacrificed themselves because they believed in us as a country. And that, that sounds tribal. That sounds nationalistic. And our friend would say, Oh, that's horrible. I can't believe you'd say stuff like that. But you know what? It, it's doing, it's doing something sacrificial for the greater good and recognizing I may not benefit, but somebody else might, whether it's my family, my, my wife. Well, the left, the left has made the, the left has made the concept of patriotism into a dirty word, um, yeah. because they they as as always because they pervert language they conflate it with uh, absolute blind lemming like allegiance. You know, my country, right or wrong. That's not what patriotism is, and I actually think that patriotism is a good thing, because. Yeah. The other thing that the left would tell you is there's absolutely nothing exceptional about America. America, in fact, in fact, America is essentially only about oppression and slavery and colonialism and, and subjugation and torment and all of the other buzzwords that they like to use. But no, there really is something truly exceptional about this country. And you know how we know that, Chad? Because even now, despite the constant barrage of propaganda about how horrific it is and how racist and how terrible is that every person in the world, including those people in Afghanistan who were literally clinging to the outside of a plane, willing to risk their lives to get out of where they were and come here, they recognize that it represents still the greatest place for freedom and thriving that has ever existed in the history of mankind. That doesn't mean it's a perfect country. That doesn't mean that we do not have horrendous stains in our national history, slavery among them. We could go down the list. What that makes us like is every other nation that has ever existed. But we are the nation that fought, and how many people died in the Civil War, Chad? How many men? 360,000? Oh, no, no. On the Union side? On the Union side? About 650,000 Americans died because confederacy was americans too right so we have spent 
incalculable blood and treasure. We are the we are the humanitarians of the world. Which country is just expected to show up when uh, there's a when there's a tsunami and an earthquake and a hurricane? It's America. Which country freed Europe from tyranny along with our allies? It's America. We have done all these things. America has been unquestionably a a force for good in the history of the world. And people that deny this are either um so so lost in their in their sort of ideological alienation or are just lying for reasons that relate to politics or otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't fathom it. And so I don't accept when people, we should be proud of our country. And yeah. there are people that are willing and have been willing to die for it because of the principles on which it was founded. Not because they believe that America was perfect and didn't need to be changed and that there weren't terrible injustices that needed to be righted, but because they understood that an experiment like this had never existed before in the history of the planet and likely never will again. Yeah. Yeah. Go go back and listen to Lee Lee Greenwood's song, proud to be an American. Just listen to the words, um, different time, but, still fits, you know, and I'm not going to sing it now because that would cause everybody to be scared. Um, yeah, you're going to have to give forewarning for any kind of singing. That's, <laughs> that's, not, so, that's not part of the regularly scheduled program. No, so as we shift from one Biden debacle to what I can only fathom is a complete breakdown of everybody in our executive branch, um, is the vaccine mandate. Um, and I, I don't want to talk about 9-11 tributes because I, I talk about Bush. He got me a little steamed. I'm not oh, sure yeah. talking about the nine, the, the January 6th, but if he wasn't, everybody seems to think he was. And he should have clarified if he wasn't, and I think he was. But we'll put that aside. I want to talk about the vaccine mandates. And I don't want to talk about, uh, well, I will talk about this, the constitutionality of it. This is the same Joe Biden who said, I can't put an eviction moratorium in, it's not constitutional. And then he did it, knowing it wasn't constitutional, and then seemed shocked that it got overturned so quickly by the Supreme Court. Here's the only thing I want want to talk about, the the constitutionality. It is plainly on its face unconstitutional, but what's more fascinating to me, if you read people like our friend, Mm -hmm. this is not even a consideration for these people. They do not even address... Whether do you do we think that this perhaps exceeds the uh, powers of the not even within the frame of reference for what they're talking about? The only thing that they even consider is this sounds like a good policy to me because it comports with my worldview and I'm smart and I've decided what's best for everyone else. As John Feel likes to say, what is it? It's for the good. It's for the it's for the public good. As if that begging question solves the issue. But it's just amazing. And we're to a place now where the left in this country openly refuses to even grapple with the question of whether they have the power to do anything. They don't care. No, they don't. So when you hear about constitutionality, they're going to cite a case from 1905 that went to the Supreme Court about a minister who didn't want to get a vaccine. Not the It was a smallpox vaccine. It wasn't the Spanish flu, although they'll probably conflate those two. Or pay a $5 fine. He didn't want to pay the $5 fine, didn't want to get the vaccine. Went to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court says, hey, the state has a right to enforce that. 
Notice the word. Oh, state. that's a rather key, rather key distinction. Yes. So when they talk about it, constitutional, including FIA, it is not. There is no constitutional precedent for this, even though they want to tell you there is. The state has the right because the states have rights. Not anything not enumerated in the Constitution is for the state. There is no general health power. Nope. No general health enforcement power vested in any part of the federal government. It doesn't exist. And here's the other giveaway. What are they try- How are they trying to implement this? Because they know it's entirely lawless. They're yeah. attempting to use OSHA. Now, this relates to the private employer mandate. And we should make clear that people don't understand this. The first part of the mandate relates to federal employees. Okay, sort of. That, that is more, sort of. That is more of a, that's a closer question, I think. But when you then have expanded it to saying, uh, I'm, I'm now waving my scepter, and all private employers nationwide with over 100 employees will also be required to mandate the vaccine, they understand that that is so beyond the pale. They have to come up with some tortured rationale. And so what they say is, oh, OSHA, OSHA can regulate this under its emergency powers. Um, now, I don't want to get into the weeds on this, but then you have to look at constitutional cases relating to, well, interstate commerce. Well, a vaccine isn't interstate commerce. It's not even interstate commerce. It's not even commerce. So this is a pure power grab. But what I want to talk about, Chad, is if they think that they can do this, there is no limiting principle here for anything. There is literally quite... There is nothing that Joe Biden and and his crew cannot mandate because they decree an emergency. Just wait till they they apply this rationale to global warming because that's coming and wait till they apply this rationale to guns because that's coming. Mm -hmm. And yet it is incredible. We have people like Dr. Fia who are openly cheerleading for this. And by the way, if this had occurred under the Trump administration, they would be rending their garments and claiming that we had now descended into total dictatorship. And you know what? They would largely be correct. Yes. Trump couldn't have done. So let's let me break this down. Help me understand this, Tony, because I applied logic to this and it. I lost something in the process. So Biden wants a mandate on vaccines because he wants to protect the people who have been vaccinated from the people who have not been vaccinated. So let me, if I, if I think that through, so I've been vaccinated and the vaccine works, it's going to reduce hospitalization. It's going to reduce death by 90 plus percent. And you want everybody to get it because you're worried about me. I've been vaccinated. You're worried about me. Uh, how's that again? So either the vaccines right. won't work or they do work. And there's something else going on here other than power grab. And we, we exempt people who've already had the virus who have natural immunity to the virus, which in, Literally any other biological discussion would be the preferred method of, of immunization, immunization. So we've got 80 million roughly people who could still get the vaccine who haven't. I'll be very, very clear here. If you haven't gotten the vaccine and you are an adult, 
and I want to clarify that, an adult, and you haven't gotten the vaccine, you've made your choice. You've decided. Of course. You don't want the vaccine. If you're under the age of 18, I don't see any compelling evidence to this point which should say you should get the vaccine. You're ri- outside of autoimmune, cancer patients, transplant patients, anything of that sort that would have an autoimmune response, and you're between 12 and 18, I haven't seen enough data from this disease or the efficacy of the vaccines currently construed to warrant mandating all those children. Now, if as an adult, you want that to happen, you, you are in control of your children and you should, you should do that. I think you should get the vaccine if you can as an adult, if you choose not to, then you've chosen not to. I was vaccinated. I was happily vaccinated. I have other medical conditions that warrant why I should. Okay. That's, that's my decision. It was my wife's decision. It was my parents' decision. It was my in-laws' decision. All adult decisions were made. But to tell me I have to, and it's a public health nuisance if I don't, and remember, we were told 70% get you herd immunity, and Biden's talking about seventy-five percent of Wait, the. Wait, are you are you telling me those goalposts have been moved too, Chad? I, well, again, I, I think the goalpost, and here's here's what you're going to start hearing: the goalpost is zero COVID infections, which is an unrealistic, unattainable goal. It no, no, wait, wait. Happen. Let me stop you right there. It's not unrealistic and unattainable. It is insane. Okay, yep, anyone yep. who understands anything about epidemiology. It, there is no such thing as COVID zero. It is a fantasy. It's like the idea that Dr. Fauci is going to go around the country with his Dyson COVID vacuum and suck up the very last COVID ion, and then we're going to declare victory. This virus is not going to go away. It will nope. always be there. There are always going to be people that get it. There's always going to be people that get sick from it, and there's going to be some people, tragically, that die from it. And the idea that policymakers are somehow going to implement just the right recipe of lockdowns and triple masking and astronaut helmets and bunkers in the ground is insane. It is not unrealistic. It is complete kookery. It will never, ever, ever, ever happen in anybody's lifetime ever. And I think the example I would point to is polio was eradicated, except it wasn't. There's still polio cases in the third world at this moment. So to tell me something is eradicated is a statistical measurement, not an actual measurement. You will never but to your point, to your point, what makes it even more insane is that we now know, given your you you explain the syllogism, which is the vaccine is very, very good and it is keeping us safe. Therefore, you must also get the vaccine because I'm afraid that you are making me unsafe. Except if I'm made unsafe, then that probably means the vaccine doesn't work, which completely repudiates the first premise. And if the vaccine doesn't work, there's really no reason for me to mandate it for you, except for the fact that I have the power to make you do what I want. Um, And further, if you now look at the data, what we know is this isn't even really a vaccine per se, in the sense that, unlike the polio vaccine, which gives most people, most people, lifetime immunity, This vaccine's efficacy is in the range of, we don't really know exactly, for most people now, four to six months. Mm -hmm. And then what do you need? Now you need a booster and another booster and another booster. That's not really the normal concept of a vaccine. I do think the data supports the idea 
that for most people who have been vaccinated, when they do reacquire COVID, and there are millions of such people who are having breakthrough infections, that the severity of the disease is diminished. And so its lethality is reduced, and that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. But the idea that the federal government, and again, these are the same people that stand outside government buildings with their placards and their pink lady parts hats chanting about my body, my choice. Don't get between the doctor and the patient. Oh, but on this situation, no, 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 no. The government is going to dictate all of those medical decisions because again, it's for the public good. And what is the government going to do for any of the people who have made the individual decision in conjunction with their doctor that the vaccine is not suitable because they have an autoimmune disease or they're actively taking cancer treatment or whatever else, and that person either dies from side effects, and by the way, that is happening, the media won't report it, or has horrific physical side effects such like Bell's palsy, like uncontrolled tremors, like cardiac arrest, like Mm -hmm. respiratory problems. Is the government going to step in and send a condolence card along with a cash uh, award to take care of those people that were forced into making this decision? I don't think so. None of that's going to happen. And that's so this let's talk about the exemptions. So the post office is exempt. Um, the teachers union is talking about exemption for their membership. Uh, let's get into the cost. So if it's good for everybody, then it's good for every Congress and their staffs are exempt from the vaccine mandate. Starting to see a picture here. Starting to see good for you. Not good for me. The plebeians, you, you stay out there. More equal, more equal pigs, less equal pigs. It's the same. It's the same story. So let's talk about this from a business perspective. So it's any company with over 100 employees. It's about 80 million workers throughout the country in various capacities. So let's say you have 200 employees in your business and 100 of them have not gotten vaccinated. The rules, the mandate says they have to get vaccinated or have to be tested weekly. Okay. It provides no provision for who's paying for that. The vaccine might be free, but the testing, the kits cost about $50 per, okay? So if you test them weekly, you're looking at $5,000 a week. If your record keeping is shoddy, which let's be honest, I'm going to guess somewhere out there, there's some bad record keeping, and you get fined, it's $14,000 per occurrence. So let's say you got those same 100 employees who don't want to get tested, and don't want to get the vaccine, and they're still employees. That's $14,000 per, which is $1.4 million a week. I got news for you. Even in a roaring economy, $1.4 million for a small business per week isn't going to fly. You're going to be out of business in a week in most cases. Take a restaurant who can't fully staff it now, and you start talking about real money coming out of your pocket in a week, every week, because somebody doesn't want to get tested, even if you mandate it, you can Chad, mandate. Do, do you are, are you laboring under the delusion that these people even think through economic Not ramifications? Not at all, because they're idiots. They have no idea what they're talking about. Ever. They, they don't. They don't care. And here's the other thing: I don't. Think, that's the thing. The people making all these comments 
other than the news media, are exempt. They don't care because it doesn't affect them at all, ever. Well, that, one, of the other, one of the other underlying premises of this, which is also false, is the idea that, well, it, okay, so yeah, maybe, maybe because you don't have the vaccine and I do, that really shouldn't matter. But you see all the bad people without the vaccine, Chad, are, are using up all of the medical resources. See, that's what's going on. Now, unfortunately, once again, the data, particularly from Israel and Great Britain, who again are leading indicators for this, who because Israel in particular has been incredibly stringent about percentages vaccinated. Well, I think the last study that I saw, 60% of the people that had been rehospitalized with breakthrough infections had been vaccinated. So even the claim that all the people in the hospital are the mouth-breathing Trump supporters who shop at Walmart. No, no. Actually, there are many, many, many people. Uh, and this stands to reason, Chad. A lot of the people who have the vaccine, which has, as we know, limited efficacy, are older. The same people that are older with comorbidities. And guess what? They're back in the hospital. So even, even the allegation that this is being driven by the unvaccinated is, is completely false. And, and even if that were a hundred percent true, it doesn't matter. Again, remember nurse Bloomberg, Right. Mm -hmm. Nurse Bloomberg, Mike Bloomberg tried to actually buy his way into the presidency. It didn't work. But when he was um, in New York, mayor of New York, remember his uh, over extra oversized. You can't buy. uh, What was it like a soda more than 32 ounces or something? Yes. I don't know if it's 32 ounces or 32 ounces at a time, even not. Not even right. bottles, even right? though, and then people went and hoarded, you know, eight ounce cans. Yeah. But the point was, the rationale was because that's bad for you. You're mm-hmm. going to get diabetes. You won't get diabetes from drinking an entire six pack of Coke, but you will from that giant big gulp. And <laughs> and you're going to use the resources that all the other Eloy need, who yeah. are eating sprouts and drinking their, you know non-high fructose corn syrup smoothies or whatever. But that rationale applies to any behavior. So Mm -hmm. if we're going to fixate on the unvaccinated, well, there's a whole host of people that we're going to have to mandate that their lifestyle is going to have to change, right? Uh, You you eat at Burger King three times a week? No, 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 no. You're not going to have access to medical care. You're certainly not going to have any benefits that are going to pay out for, I don't know, cardiovascular issues because you've made a bad decision. Now, again, we're never going to scrutinize the bad decisions by the people who are making these rules. but. Once you go down this route, there is no stopping point. None. No, no. There's. I want to. I want to read something from Leanna Wen. For those of you who don't know, I know Tony does. <laughs> Leanna Wen. Leanna Wen. She's a visiting professor of health policy and management at George Washington University, a Washington Post columnist, the former president of Planned Parenthood, and a medical analyst for CNN. You can probably guess where this is going. Uh, is this the lady that wants to make you stay in your house? Yes, she said. <laughs> she said, "I think we really need to make it clear." there are privileges associated with being an American. If you wish to have those privileges, you need to get vaccinated. Travel and having the right to travel interstate is not a constitutional right, as far as I know, to board a plane. If you want to stay unvaccinated, that's your choice. But if you want to travel, you better get vaccinated. Now, point of contention here, the Supreme Court has long recognized the constitutional right to travel interstate. I, so, I don't think Miss Wen is a, uh, unlike Barack Obama, she's not a constitutional scholar. 
yeah. So that's that's just one I, I've seen late night. No, com- but she also goes on to say in that same because I was reading the piece, there's probably multiple pieces where she also says you probably should be required to stay in your house. Yes. You should not be able to leave uh, your so home. We, we can't even have intra neighborhood travel because, you know, you're, you're unclean. I mean, it's basically you're a leper. Well, and somebody brought this up. Then I never like to talk about this, but mark of the beast is, is your vaccination card. Now your mark of the beast. If you want to do anything, I don't think it is. I'm not saying that. Well, it's really to me more about the, the whole Chinese social credit system, uh, which is there. There are tiers. You, you are a second or third or fourth class citizen based on the dictates of the uh, you know the autocrats at the top. And here's so here's the wrinkle in this the the kind of the, the fly in the ointment for these people. Setting aside the fact that it's going to be struck down, what I they hope- don't seem to appreciate is that many of the people because the media never talks about this, who are unvaccinated, are minorities. Yeah. Okay, so there is a large segment of the African-American and Latino community uh, who are not vaccinated. And see, they all, in their mind's eye, what they picture is Jethro in his General Lee and yeah. his banjo, right, with, with his, you know, uh, his Gatorade, or no, his, um, what do they call it, Mountain Dew mouth, right, not taking the vaccine. And what they don't realize is there is a large segment of the community they care that they care most about Chad, right? They who are going to be disproportionately affected by this mandate. Now, I, the next thing we're going to see is some rationalization for why only white males (laughs) who are unvaccinated, this only applies to them because members of the intersectional grievance totem pole, they they because they've been marginalized and oppressed, therefore they can make their own decisions, whatever. Because they're going to recognize the error here, right? They're going to say, "Uh oh, we can't antagonize our base. We got to fix that." What did I read in mid-August? The teachers, the public school teachers in New York City, only forty percent of them were vaccinated. Public school teachers. I in the same article I read that seventy-five percent of self-proclaimed evangelicals have been vaccinated. Now, reading our friend's work, you, you, you would, should get our you should get that memo to our friend. You would not believe that. You would think it's all evangelicals, and I know that to your point, they want to paint every Trump voter or supporter as a mouth breeding, knuckle dragging, anti-vax, anti-intellectual. And I want to say, I'm not anti-intellectual, but I'm also not bowing down to somebody who has a PhD and I don't give a crap. Well, no, because here's the thing. That label, the people that are almost uh, pathologically anti-intellectual as it relates to COVID yeah. are the, the vaccine mask cultists. There, yes. there is no other – the data is clear relating to these issues, and they simply don't care mm-hmm. because it is a faith-based solution and it also allows them to identify members of their own enlightened tribe that's what they really like about it which is oh look good person see that guy in his tesla with the mask on and nobody else in the car good person see that guy in that pickup truck no mask smoking no mask bad person very bad person in fact we, we need to hang the scarlet letter around his neck one quick other point about this yes our friend always likes to talk about the fact and rail about the fact that evangelicals are fixated on what he calls rights, which are not 
really theological or biblical concepts. They're man-made concepts. Uh, we, could, we could debate that a little bit. But, <laughs> but here's the point. Those rights that are enshrined in the Constitution also have a moral component, because he loves to talk about morality and how the people that agree with him are moral and those that don't are immoral. And lawlessness and actual tyranny and coercion is immoral. Mm -hmm. And so nobody who calls themselves a Christian should be supporting that kind of behavior by a government that is also subject to God's law. And so he loves to make this false dichotomy between rights, secular rights, rights claimed as part of the natural law, and then what is biblical. Well, guess what? What the government is trying to do right now, I don't oppose it simply because I'm, re I'm referring to some man-made charter of rights. It's because it is fundamentally immoral. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't want to have that conversation. He never. He put out something last week. Uh, he didn't name the Texas law or the the anti-abortion law, but he talked about. And I, I hate talking about him because he just irks me. And I give well, him again. Let's concern. make the point. He is he is he is a close to home representative of of all of these views, and he's an evangelical Christian, which actually brings it even closer to home because he is parroting these things yeah. from the standpoint of someone who has some level of credibility within the evangelical church and so, as supposedly a representative of evangelical Christianity. So that's yeah. one of the reasons. It really isn't about him individually. It's about the viewpoint that he expresses, which right. is reflective of a whole bunch of other people as well. That's fair. So he put out this, uh, he talked about Jewish law as it relates to birth. I don't know if you read the article, but basically Jewish law doesn't recognize birth or child having a soul until they've crowned, until they, the child has come out of the, the uterus uh, and is exposed to the air and then suddenly has a soul. So anything aborted before that, and he, he puts to scripture, um, Old Testament scripture, I might add, but still scripture, you, you can kill the baby if it can cause harm to the woman. Um, you don't have to try to save the baby to do that. This is the same man who said he's... Wait, wait. Uh, actually, this fascinates me. So, so is he now taking the position that he's embracing Old Testament That's, uh, Jewish law? I, so I think, for recaps, if, if people don't know, the, the Texas law forbids abortions after you can, can detect a fetal heartbeat, which is about six weeks after conception he's saying it's not really a human being according to jewish law until it actually comes out and then it becomes a, a human life and but it as best as i can tell he's not an orthodox jew so i'm not really sure great i mean I, why doesn't he cite what the uh, what islamic law is i i don't understand at all i i think it's it's his way of saying i dislike the law and my evangelical brothers and the, the gop and all these mouth-breathing trump voters for doing this <clears throat> after he told us that making a keeping abortion legal reduced abortions and now he's saying according to jewish law again this is how he phrases things he never he very rarely i'll say never he very rarely gives his own actual opinion he quotes somebody else and quotes their article oh, no, no no well this so, is so this uh, is this is the game no this is the game which is yeah. i've noticed this if he doesn't like something Oh, he's very, very willing oh, yes, to give exactly. his opinion. However, 
if it is a viewpoint that he knows is controversial and he doesn't really want to stake out his own position because I think in many ways he knows it's indefensible, he -hmm. will simply cite to an article kind of approvingly and then make no commentary whatsoever. It's like, oh, here's so-and-so from the Atlantic. Bring in, bring in the, uh, he's, he's, he's written a strong piece on this, right? It's the, uh, it's the Paul Reiser, I'm not saying, I'm just saying approach. Yeah. I, I think that's where I'm, I, I get tired of that approach because it's, I feel like that's cowardly. If you hold that opinion, then, then state that. You can cite somebody else's materials if you want to, to support that, but support it. I'm not sure, I, and that may be Old Testament Jewish law. It may be. And if you read the whole Bible, you'll notice the <laughs> Jewish law ended with Christ's resurrection from the tomb. So pretty much the end of all the Gospels into all the Paul books, it's over. It, the Jewish law does not apply. Now, it applies to Orthodox Jews because they, they don't recognize Christ as the Messiah. But you, you're he, he's quick to point out that you can't parse things and pull things out of context. Context is a big thing, he says. But he's really pulling something out that's that's not really applicable outside of Orthodox Jews today and trying to apply that. Well, it's really bad that you want to do this. It's, it's really bad. It's almost, if, if he was honest, I believe he's pro-choice. He'll say he's pro-life, but only so much as it doesn't get him in trouble with the pro-choice. He won't. Well, look, really I've, said this, I've, I've said this before and it's, and I, I don't want to go into a digression about this, but, um, he is objectively pro-choice in who he is voting for. Sure. Meaning the same way that he says, if you voted for Trump, here's A to Z of what you are supporting and you own it. Well, guess what? You're voting for the Democratic Party right now. You're supporting the most radically pro-abortion party in the history of this country. Not even close to debatable. Now, that doesn't mean I can't get inside his, his head or his heart. That doesn't mean that he might perhaps have uh, a belief that you know abortion is wrong. I'll take him at his word. But the reality is, under his framework of you are tainted by your political choices and what you have voted for is you, he is pro-choice and radically so. Because the party that he supports will, will brook no opposition. And I just find it incredible in some ways that an evangelical Christian is contorting himself to find reasons why it is impermissible for a state to try to minimize abortions. That is... Somewhat unfathomable to me, but there it is. Well, it's an article dated from, and I'll give you the reference here if anybody wants to look it up. Uh, Current by John Fia six days ago. What do Jewish Jewish texts say about abortion? And he cites uh, Rachel McKeva of the Chicago Theological Seminary, and she she makes his argument for her, for him. Uh, but just it, I. I, I like what you're saying. It's more he's representative of a certain group of people than him personally that we're we're talking about because I do I, I feel like he's he's renting space in my head sometimes because as soon as I see something he writes, I get angry because I know it's gonna be 
It's going to be in a Trump bashing. It's going to be in a GOP bashing. It's going to be an evangelical bashing. He's going to bash somebody. It's never going to be a positive. Hey, look what they did. They did a good thing or somebody did a good thing. Unless it's a Democrat, then he'll give them. Well, well, Chad, you know, to be fair, we do, we do our share of bashing. So I'm not really, I'm not really opposed to bashing. Well, and I don't um, mind bashing. I, I'm not tr- Hopefully, hopefully we are, uh, we, we probably fail at this, but hopefully we are bashing what we consider to be bad ideas as opposed to, you know, demonizing people. I think we're, yeah. I think we're usually pretty good about that. I, um, the ideas thing is my, I, I don't, I don't agree with my opponent's ideas. I don't hate them as people. Mostly. Well, and the point that we've continued to make, and I think which distinguishes us um, from him is that, I will be, I'm not reticent to point out when I think ideas are misguided and destructive, but certainly from a Christian perspective, I do not have a litmus test for a political litmus test for what constitutes a good Christian. And he does. He explicitly does. And the good Christians are the ones that agree with his political and ideological views and those that do not are bad. And that to me is a very inappropriate and divisive way uh, to behave, particularly when one claims that what he wants to see is unity and healing and all the other things that Donald Trump apparently exploded when he was in the White House. So um, I think enough on that. Um, are there any other? Are there, are there, go ahead. The California recall. Tomorrow is the last day to vote. It's an in-person yeah. voting. Do you think Newsom gets recalled? And if so, who wins if you don't think I so, think why? if there was a legitimate election uh where the California Democratic machine could not manipulate the votes and again Tony take off your tinfoil hat no no um if you know anything about what goes on in California and all these other democrat strongholds with the ballot ballot harvesting is explicitly permitted yes. Larry Elder is not going to win it, it yeah. is simply he is in the middle of Mordor and they are going to ensure that he is not the governor. That is just, uh, un- just cannot happen. So yeah. I think, look, I think if there wasn't some level of shenanigans that are going to go on, and they absolutely will, I think it would be a very, very close recall. I think, I think Newsom is going to wind up, quote unquote, winning by a fairly sizable margin. It, it's, you know, it's California. Well, something I just learned today, uh, California voting or fundraising uh, has has term has limits about how much somebody can give in a normal election. In a recall election, it's unlimited. He's raised eighty million dollars, and I don't think all the combined the candidates running against him combined have raised maybe ten total. He can carry that money over into his reelection campaign next year uh, if he doesn't spend it all. So. It's kind of like, mm, really? I mean, the other people could have raised the same amount, but they weren't going to because it's a Democratic stronghold and the, the fat cats were going to keep Newsom in power. Well, by the way, Chad, is it is it the Mencken quote that says the people have spoken and now they're going to get it good and hard? Yeah. Uh, in some respect, I want California voters, of course, who they deserve Gavin Newsom. They <laughs> deserve every one of his epically backwards, misguided destructive policies that have done the exact same thing to his state that they've done in every other blue state. And so, I mean, look, I admire Larry Elder. 
Um, and it would be great if he was governor just because it would be, it would cause seizures, um, you know, in, in the media class. I don't think it's going to happen. And one other thing to add, I don't know if you saw this, but within the last week or so, Larry Elder was on campaigning somewhere and a, and a white woman mm-hmm. in a gorilla mask. Someone was a woman, but we don't know. We don't right. know. A person in a gorilla mask rode by and threw an egg at him. Now, it's not that it was going to harm him, but I want again to posit the existence of us in an alternative universe. If that had happened to any African-American Democrat politician, it would be the lead story right now on every single network. It would have been playing. There would be, again, forums convened. There would be a need for federal legislation. The Department of Justice would descend on California. The FBI would be ferreting out racist militias. And yet there has not been a peep. Not even a mention in the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN. They don't even mention it. And again, what this demonstrates which has been demonstrated millions of times, they don't actually care about racism at all. No, they don't. Well, you brought up the video, or the the woman, I think. Uh, I want to analyze what she did wrong, because I don't think anybody's actually looked at that. Larry Elder might have gotten clipped by the egg. It's not really clear. He doesn't look like he flinches, so maybe not. So if you learn anything from the biathlon in the Olympics – Heart, as heart rate accelerates, your aim gets a little off. It's really hard to keep your heart rate focused and steady. She was riding a bike into a crowd, a little agitated. Uh, secondly, she was wearing a mask, which probably makes it harder to see out of those eye holes. So you've already diminished yourself with a rapid heart rate, eye holes. As she's moving, which also makes it very difficult to aim correctly, she doesn't really stop and she leans back and she's off her back foot when she's throwing, which obviously, as we know, watching any football game, it's going to go high, which it did. So she did everything wrong to accomplish her goal of hitting Larry Elder in the back of the head with an egg. And I think that's indicative of the group we're talking about. They're wrong on every possible way. They just don't realize it and they don't get called out on it. So I'm calling you out, ma'am, as a horrible egg tosser and i do not want you at the next easter egg hunt just saying don't want you there so <laughs> she might be a better uh, first pitch thrower outer though than dr fauci uh it'd be a good contest we should her. have you should have we should have john brinkus remember that guy sports science is he still at espn i don't really watch espn much anymore so i don't know he but might we, be could, we, sh- we should have him do one of those uh, biomechanical breakdowns with yes. the uh, you know the 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 launch velocity, the everything was platform, yeah, the mechanics are off. That would yeah, be she, good. Her, her mechanics were horrible. If she had a pitching coach, they would have said, "Get back to the dugout. You you don't even deserve mm-hmm. to be on the field." It was just horrible. So, Larry avoided a scrambled egg. We don't even know it could have been a hard boiled egg. We don't know. We didn't see the end result. It could have been a rotten, smelly egg. We we assume it was a chicken egg. Turkey eggs are a little bit bigger, a little harder to throw. It was white. Hard to tell. Just wanted to give you that analysis. You didn't ask for it, but there it is. Take it for what it is. But and here's the, here's the final takeaway from today's show, Chad. Are you ready? That um, for at least one week, Mike Tomlin will not. Chad will not be calling for Mike Tomlin's firing. We are we are one week in, and Mike Tomlin for now is safe. But week two always holds the uh, promise of disappointment. Your point always, I don't know who I would replace him with, but if he resigned tomorrow, I'd be fine. 
<laughs> it wouldn't bother me in the slightest. And, and and when Mike Tomlin is hoisting a Lombardi trophy at the end of the year, Chad will be saying, you know what? That's a fine accomplishment. Tomorrow, I really hope he tenders his resignation. It would be great. I mean, when go out on top. Good for him. Win a Super Bowl. Go out. He and Ben can retire together. And we can suck for a decade, but that's okay because we'll we'll go through a couple coaches to get there, but we're going to get there. Believe me. I'm okay with it. That's fine. Thank you for uh, uh, making fun of me again, again on the Steelers. I really appreciate that. <laughs> uh, I, I just think that's 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 the one area that my wife enjoys because we we always disagree. So I like to needle I like to needle you about the Steelers. So that will continue throughout the year. It's a, hey the the Tennessee Volunteers lost uh, a heartbreaker. Um, Are the Tennessee Volunteers still Division One football team, Chad? Uh, I think they're they're trying out an FBS resume. I'm not really well, sure. I will well, tell you that Florida State lost to uh, what was it, Jackson State? Yeah, or Jackson, whatever. I don't know. Jacksonville State, not Jackson. Jackson yeah. State, Deion Sanders is that, but Jacksonville State. Uh, yeah. So F- the Seminoles, um, boy, or the criminals, however you want to refer to them, <laughs> uh, that that as that is a very if you're an FSU alum, that is a dire. Hey, a dire situation. Michigan lost to Appalachian State. What am I going to say? I can't really say much. It happens. Uh, any any given Saturday, there's a lot bigger disparity between teams. But any given Saturday, somebody could come in and upset you if you don't get prepared. We'll see. But folks, thanks for joining us tonight. It's been really long, but we had a lot to share. So thank you for joining us. I'm Chad. I'm Tony. Good night. <laughs> This has been a Hannah Tree production.